Our gospel reading this morning is from the gospel according to Luke, the 16th chapter, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of God. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is cast taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may be welcome into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. When you, if then, not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Those of you who, like me, have trouble realizing sometimes that you're quite as old as you are, do you ever think back through the years and, and look back on things that you did or things that happened and, and wondered how you made it this long? I've had that happen, particularly when I think about driving. When I think about myself as a new driver and near misses I had and things that didn't happen that very easily could have happened and wonder how I still and uh, 44 years old, have managed to never have a wreck charged to me. Uh, I didn't say I've never been in a wreck. I never said I've been charged in a wreck. I want to be clear on that. No law has ever said one was my fault. But I look at all the near misses. And I think about those near misses. And I have to ask myself, it seems like I've learned. Because I know you, now like some people, probably don't have the bad habit of maybe when you need to use both hands, you steer the wheel with your knees so that you can do whatever it is you need to do. Or maybe you, I know you also have never done the trick where you turn to your passenger and get them to take the wheel and steer from the passenger's side so you can do whatever you need to do. None of you have ever done that, I know. I know none of you have been like my grandfather who would be driving down the road and see something that piqued his interest and watched it. I mean, kept watching it and talking about how he couldn't believe they painted that house. And then barreling down the road at a two-ton automobile the whole time. And I know none of you text and drive because that's illegal in addition to being deadly dangerous. So you've gone, I know you don't text and drive, but you probably still distract yourself, don't you, by fiddling with your radio with the GPS and then you look up and realize something was there that wasn't there just a moment ago. And do you know, I'm not suggesting you should do this, in fact I'm suggesting you shouldn't do this, but as an aftermarket 
you can buy a screen and have it installed on the driver's side dash so that you can stream your favorite Netflix show while you drive, which is also a bad idea for the record. We have divided attentions so often, don't we? I want you to hang on to that idea because we're going to come back to it. In this reading we have in this morning's gospel lesson, we see Jesus speaking to us again in a parable. And just to make sure we all understand what a parable is, as they're used in the Gospel of Luke, it's Jesus using the unknown, or rather using the known to explain the unknown. He's using symbolic language to, to prove a point you make it by using this sort of analogy, sort of an illustration. And here, in this parable of the dishonest manager, we find an especially challenging parable, one that's difficult to wrap our heads around or understand. It's disturbing, frankly, to me because we have a a manager who's caught squandering his master's property. He's caught. And his response is to call in all the people who owe his master money and to make side deals with them to settle the debt so that he puts that money in his own pocket. And then when he's caught doing that, he's commended by his boss. And I think we're left to puzzle What is being commended here? Jesus' commentary at the end of the passage, as much as I I don't like to say it, leaves us with just as many questions. What's the point of the story, I'm wondering? Jesus, is Jesus saying, as he seems to say in in verse 9, that the point of the parable is that the manager, if we're able to make friends for ourselves by means of dishonest will, we should do that? Or is he saying in verse 10 that the point of the story is that if we're faithful in small things, we can trust to be faithful in big things and vice versa? Or is he saying, as it seems in verse 11, is the point that we can't, if we can't be trusted with dishonest wealth, why should we be trusted with honest wealth? Of course, that crosses over the idea, what are we doing with something we gain dishonestly? Or is it we see in verse 12, seemingly, that if we've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, how can we be trusted with something that's our own? Some of those make sense in one way or the other, but we're still left with an ambiguity. We're left not having Jesus tie the loose ends for us together. And another difficulty I have with this parable is I don't know who I'm supposed to identify with, or I think I do, but I don't like the answer. If you're like me, whether you're watching a movie or reading a book or even if you're reading a parable in the Bible. Maybe you find yourself identifying with someone in the story, somebody that you see as yourself. And when I read this parable, the master seems to be representative of God, so I can't, you know, I should probably try to be God in the parable. And that leaves the dishonest manager and the people who he's settling accounts with. I don't want to be identified. I don't want to be the dishonest manager because, you know, his negative example is the whole point of the parable. But then you also have the people with whom he has settled all the debts. And they have their debts canceled, but not by the person they owe them to. So they're kind of left in, are they really forgiven their debts or not? The story is troubling. And I think the reason it's troubling is we're supposed to identify, we're supposed to see ourselves as that this honest manager. We're supposed to see ourselves as one who is not trustworthy with that which was entrusted to him. The story is troubling. There's no doubt about it. 
because it's left open-ended. What does that say about us? Pastor and writer Luke Bowman points out a connection between this parable and a, and a novel, <clears throat> excuse me, a novel by Graham Greene called The Power and the Glory. Greene sets his story against the Mexican Revolution where, and it's set in the Tabasco province of Mexico, and the, the Marxists have seized this province and outlawed religion. And priests and religious leaders of all types are all of a sudden wanted people. They're not only are they not allowed to practice or lead uh, religious services or teach, but they are actively being sought to be imprisoned or even killed. And his protagonist in the novel is what he calls a whiskey priest. It's a priest who's long since abandoned his vows and has decided he'd much rather enjoy a life of dissolute living than um, teaching and preaching and administering the sacraments. And even though he has turned his back on God and he's turned his back on his calling as a priest, those who are hunting priests are nevertheless hunting him. And so his only option is to leave, to go to another province, which and the, the, the bulk of the narrative of the novel is his traveling from the province of Tabasco where he is to a place where the Marxists have not yet taken over and it's safe to be who he is. And as he travels along the way, people see him and they go, oh, you're a priest. We need a priest to say mass for us. We need a priest to baptize our children. We need a, a priest to preach to us, to teach us. And he doesn't want the role of priest. Yet he keeps having that role forced on him over and over, and he keeps exercising priestly functions over and over. Even though it's not what he wants, even though it's not what he's seeking, he's nevertheless living into the calling he's trying to avoid. These two stories, to me, have some similarities. Both the dishonest manager and the priest, they've lost their status with their lords. They're both looking for shelter from judgment. And they both dispense grace, their master's grace, giving whatever, giving what's not theirs to give. The dishonest manager, he's not been authorized to settle his master's debts, but he is. And this priest in Green's novel is not supposedly allowed to exercise the sacraments and to preach anymore, yet he is. And both at the end of this parable and the end of the novel, the status of both is in question. At the end of Green's novel, by the time he gets to safety, by the time he's arrived, the priest ultimately decides he needs to go back to Tabasco, back where it's not safe. And we're left not knowing what happens to him. Just as at the end of this parable, we're left not knowing what happens to the dishonest manager. It's ambiguous. We don't know. When I look at these parables side by side, with the, the parable that Jesus gives us, and, 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 and when I think about it in this novel, I, I'm left knowing whom I'm supposed to identify with in both. Like it or not, I'm the dishonest steward. Like it or not, we all are because of our sin. Each of us, whether we like it or not, has squandered the gifts that God our Lord has given us. We are, each of us, unfit to be stewards of God's household. That's true for the best of us as well as the worst of us, for pastors and laity, for bishops and children. But we're blessed in that we have a gracious God. God's way of dealing with us is different than our way of dealing with one another. While we are quick to condemn or cast out, to 
deep rock or to exclude from our lives people. God doesn't do that. God forgives. God welcomes. God invites in. God's grace is transforming for those who experience His power. You know, there were those in Jesus' day, as there are those today, who don't recognize or see that they need God's grace. They don't see the necessity of acting graciously toward others. It's not only for us, but it's for them that Jesus tells that story. He's saying, see how this non-faithful, dishonest manager knows the power of what is offered, even if he doesn't exercise it himself, but he's able to, to try and offer it to other people. How much more how much more can we experience God's grace if we're faithful in that process? Our gracious God has given himself freely to us in Jesus Christ. We're claimed in the waters of baptism. We're redeemed from the power of sin and death in our, when we grow into God's image and likeness. And we're called to be God's bearers of grace in the world. We who squandered God's grace more than we shared it we're nevertheless called to give God's grace, to reflect God's grace, even though it's not ours to give, it's nevertheless entrusted to us to give anyway. It strikes me that that's part of who we are as church, that we stand here Sunday after Sunday, we throw open the doors of our congregation, and we invite flawed, imperfect people into our community to hear God's word, to share in God's sacraments, one way of thinking about this idea comes from Martin Luther, who once said mere, that we are mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We should rid ourselves of any notion that we're worthy to be givers of God's grace. In that sense, we're like the steward or the priest in the novel. But what we need to own is even though we're not worthy, God calls us and uses us nevertheless God takes the broken vessels that we are and he shapes us into vessels that bear God's love to the world. He closes this parable by speaking of a servant with two masters. As awful as it is to imagine that people could be considered property. In the Roman world in which Jesus and his disciples lived, slavery was a reality. And it was possible under Roman law for a slave to be owned by more than one person. Just as you might decide to go in with a friend or buy, buy a boat or form a, a partnership to own property together, real estate, I mean, in the Roman world, you can share a human being with someone as property. And Jesus points out, using, and, and Jesus would not have had to explain that to his hearers. They would have known that. And he lifts up the idea saying, how can a servant serve two masters equally? How can he love one and love the other? How can he love them the same? Would not his divided, his loyalties be divided? It's a trivial way to think about it, but all of us have found ourselves, I bet, in that situation. As I said, it's a trivial way, but it's a situation that I've encountered in the past and will have to encounter again this November with my alma mater, Walton College, plays Clemson University. Now, I know that I'm wading into dangerous waters when I talk about football. I want you to know I'm, I'm talking about it, but we're all going to love each other on the other side of this, I promise. 
But Walford, several years ago, played Clemson. I grew up in a Clemson house, and, but I went to Walford. My primary loyalty is Walford. I'm a, I'm a, that's my alma mater. And several years ago, when Walford played Clemson, and our family went to the game, and I was decided, how am I supposed to dress? So I put on a Clemson shirt and a Walford hat to the game I went. And as I'm walking up into the stands, a man looked up at me as I'm walking up to my seat and he said, I wondered what people like you were going to do. It's not lost on me, by the way, that I, or I put on one garment that covered my heart and another that covered my brain. Seems I was divided against myself. And now in November, when that same matchup repeats itself, I already know what the outcome I think will be, but how will I, I decided, I can't do that again. Spoiler alert, I'm going gold and black, just so y'all know. I'm going to be all in for my alma mater. Because I feel like I can't be divided against myself. How can you cheer? Can you cheer for two teams who are playing each other and not be disingenuous in one way or the other? You've got that. If you're pulling for somebody, you can't pull for two teams to win. Because I don't know if you know a lot about football, but only one team wins. We can be divided against ourselves. And that's, like I said, that's a silly example, but it's one I think that we can relate to in one way or another that we can create divided loyalties in our lives. We can split our attention. Remember a moment ago about our friend driving? You can't drive the car and be effective at driving the car and be safe driving the car and do other things. At the same time, we can't be divided against ourselves ways that we shouldn't be divided against ourselves. We should have, we should, when we're driving a car, our primary task is to get that two-ton automobile safely from point A to point B. And there are times in our lives that, that we put things in our path that make us have divided loyalties. That we can be faithful to the wrong things. In a way, we live our lives with competing multiple masters, don't we? We have jobs and we have school. We surround ourselves with the pursuit of status and stuff. But to serve God means to trust God. It means to give away the grace and love that God has given us and that is in opposition to a life that makes the most important thing the pursuit of what we want. These are two ways of living and they're in conflict with each other. Just as driving a car and watching Netflix is in conflict with each other. We can't be focused on sharing God's love and grace and be simultaneously focused on pursuing these things for ourselves selfishly. Jesus is right. There are two ways of living. They are in conflict. And only one of them leads to God. Will you pray with me? Faithful God, we give thanks that in Jesus Christ you have entrusted us with the richness of your glory and the treasures of your grace. Make us faithful stewards of your good gifts that we may show your love to others and welcome us into your home worship and serve you forever. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.